Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is Primetime Politics, the Vote 29 edition. Coming up, we'll drill, drill down rather on one of the top concerns for Canadians in this campaign, healthcare, including pharmacare, on a day when the abortion debate is back in the spotlight, and on a day when the major party leaders, minus the Prime Minister, will take part in the first televised debate carried right here on CPAC. And that debate will come your way at 8 o'clock Eastern Time tonight. It features Andrew Scheer, Jagmeet Singh and uh, Elizabeth May, but it will not feature the Prime Minister, of course. He has long made it been known that he will not uh, be part of that debate tonight at City TV in McLean's, carried here on CPAC. He'll take part in three others during the campaign, but not the one tonight. So we'll talk about that. Let's start our uh, day two coverage with our campaign primer. The big event on day two of the campaign is a televised leaders debate, but the main contender is skipping the fight. At a campaign stop in Victoria, B.C., Justin Trudeau was asked why. This, this is about today's debate, and you're not there. And I am very much looking forward to being in Edmonton tonight. I'm very happy to be here uh, in Victoria today. Very happy to be continuing to talk with Canadians. And of course, I look forward to the opportunity uh, to debate against uh, my fellow leaders uh, in the three occasions that we'll be, uh, we'll be doing in this campaign. The City TV McLean's debate carried on CPAC features the other main party leaders, Andrew Scheer, Jagmeet Singh and Elizabeth May, but the Prime Minister has said he will do only the two debates sponsored by the Electoral Commission and a second French language debate on Quebec Network TVA. His opponents accused him of running from his record. It's uh, someone who's afraid of his record and if I were him I would be too. His record is pretty abysmal but that doesn't mean he should give up on the debate so that's going to be one of our challenges. The Conservative leader Andrew Scheer was mostly laying low today in Toronto preparing for the debate, but he was forced to address his party's position on abortion again. Because of this video of Conservative candidate and York Centre Rachel Wilson at a pro-life rally in Ottawa in May of 2017. It was posted to social media by Liberal Cabinet Minister Carolyn Bennett. In it, Rachel Wilson talks about what's needed to advance legislation on abortion. The Conservative leader insisted the issue won't be reopened by a Conservative government without saying he would block any efforts to do so by his MPs. Nothing on this issue has changed for our party. Uh, we have always made it very clear that uh, we will not support reopening uh, the issue. The Conservative government will not reopen this issue. And as Prime Minister, I will oppose, I will vote against any measure that does attempt to do that. We are and the candidate herself, when asked, refuse to commit to leaving the issue alone if she's elected. Well, we are the only party that allows for, we are a big blue tent, we're the only party that allows for, for free votes, and so I'm grateful that our, our leader will allow free votes on issues of moral conscience. You love all the pups. We all love all the pups. The Prime Minister in Victoria, B.C. made a pledge to expand incentives for first-time home buyers in high-priced housing markets. He too faced questions on abortion, including his own past personal views against abortion. My view, and I've been very, very clear about it, is that every woman in Canada gets to choose uh, what she does uh, with her own body, with her own reproductive rights. Uh, no one 
uh, can force a woman to choose when or with whom to start a family. It is her choice. The focus for the NDP today was health care. The NDP leader repeating his party's pledge to create publicly funded pharmacare by 2020 and to provide more federal funding for health care, including a new hospital in Brampton. Uh, right here, we're at Brampton Civic Hospital, and with five Liberal MPs, they have failed to improve the health care conditions here in, in Brampton. Can you do it now? You want to say hi? And that's the kind of day it's been, day two of the 2019 election campaign. <laughs> no. And speaking of candidate controversies, more candidates are being dropped by their parties tonight. The Conservatives have announced they demanded the resignation of their candidate in the riding of Winnipeg North, Cameron Ogilvie, after learning about discriminatory social media posts. The party says he hid the posts by deactivating his social media accounts during the party's vetting process. And the Green Party candidate in the Ontario riding of Simcoe North has resigned after a Facebook post emerged of him joking he was sending a barbecued pig carcass to Muslims. And two NDP candidates have resigned from the party, one in the Quebec riding of La Salimard Verdun, following allegations of domestic abuse. The other, a candidate in Kamloops, B.C., because of social media comments sent to pro-pipeline protesters. Well, let's bring in our panel of party observers now to talk about some of the key developments in the campaign today. Jeff Turner is a Liberal commentator, Ashton Arsenault is a Conservative commentator, and Anne McGrath is an NDP commentator. Good to see you all. Let's talk uh, about the debate uh, coming up this evening um, right here on CPAC. And Jeff, let me start with you. Uh, the Prime Minister's reason for uh, skirting the debate today was to say, look, I'm, I'm having a good time meeting people out on the campaign trail in British Columbia and, and in Alberta and in Edmonton. Uh, but this would be a chance for him to tell Canadians where he is on, on, a, on some big issues, foreign affairs, the economy, indigenous issues, uh, the environment and energy. Uh, he, he's, he, he, he claims that he's done a lot on those things. This would be a good opportunity for him to talk about that, wouldn't it? So why doesn't he want it? I think the Prime Minister will have lots of opportunities in the coming 38 days to talk about uh, many issues and his position on them. Let's think back to the 2015 campaign, and, and certainly before then, and, and including that campaign, a long history in Canadian politics of political jockeying for campaign uh, prominence or, or backroom negotiations that fall apart. What the Prime Minister, uh, before he was Prime Minister, promised is that he would cut through that with ensuring that there was a level of debates um, formally put together by an independent commission. And he followed through with that commitment by appointing uh, David Johnson, the former Governor General, right. unassailable character, uh, to uh, establish those two foundational debates. And those are what's happening and those are being participated in. That doesn't preclude other debates from happening, but I think it's important that we have those two foundational uh, debates. Right, and that's, what, that's what, he, what he's also said, Ashton, is look, I, I, uh, I, we, that's why we set up the commission. A uh, couple things to note. Uh, Justin Trudeau was up for anybody who wanted to have a debate in the last election when he was the third party. Uh, and he's also said that uh, I'll do the two commission debates, and that's why I don't want to do a whole lot of others, but I'll do this other one in, in Quebec at TVA because there's a giant audience for it. Uh, so, Ashton, what do you make of that? Why do, you, why do you think he's skipping this debate? Yeah, I'll start here. Look, I've spoken with a number of Liberal partisans in and around town in the last couple of days, and I'm surprised at how many of them actually told me that they're not all impressed that he's not showing up tonight. This is what I'll say. You've got three other candidates on stage vying for your job, and you're not going to show up to the job interview. That's not a tremendous look. And I think in Justin Trudeau's case, yes, he did set up this sort of consortium 
Gershom debate system, but everybody expected him to sort of fall short last year when he was participating in the debate, sorry, 2015. Mm. The reality is he overperformed, and now it looks like he's kind of not showing up to defend his record, and it leaves a sour taste in people's And what do you think? I think there is a logical inconsistency here. I mean, he, it's true. He was up for every debate uh, last time, and we, every campaign now, it seems lately, we have this debate about the debates. It's kind of a, a feature of... Yeah, it's, the, the, it's the timing. I mean, the commission was supposed to solve know, that, but it's, it's not. It's like the timing of the writ drop and the uh, you know, and the uh, debate about the debates are two kind of constants in Canadian politics, it seems. But it, it is, doesn't make sense to have been so open and accessible, uh, and 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 then basically this looks like he's uh, he's he's very counter to brand. It is not it's not who he's supposed to be. Uh, he's supposed to be that person who is open and accessible, and I, so his and his argument doesn't hold together. If you say, well, the consort—it's the consortium or the the two main main ones—and then you accept a third one uh, for t with TVA, it doesn't make sense why he wouldn't do the one tonight. And this is early in the campaign; it's a good opportunity. Uh, what do you say to that, Jeff? Well, I'm just thinking about the way that you framed the question to Ashton, and, and the the prime minister has let's not forget over the last year done a number of town halls across the country where he was in auditoriums with quite literally. Yeah, but we're in an election campaign. Now that's that's different than picking and choosing town halls when there's not an election. Cycle. And people won't remember that. Sure, I think the people who are at those town halls remember it because he took the tough questions and answered them and, and was able to communicate and show who he was as a leader. And the other leaders haven't done that over the last year. They only speak to party audiences. So I think that's an important foundational part in terms of being accessible continuously. Uh, for the debate program, uh, as I said in my opening answer, we have two debates that have been predetermined that everybody is participating in that will be beamed to television uh, sets across this country in both official languages. Mm -hmm. That is the baseline that is really important. And for other debates, like the one tonight, this is a debate that is being hosted by a magazine, broadcast on a channel owned by the same owner as that magazine. I don't, uh, CPAC I, I, I'm is not, doing. I'm not sure they're still connected anymore, but they, but but, there, but there's also uh, CPAC will carry it as well. As you of say. course, CPAC is doing its important role in translating and, and putting it in French. I think it's very important, and I, I commend you for doing it. But that is a limited audience, and what is important here is ensuring that the broad audience. Do you think uh, it's a bigger is, audience than the one he'll have in Edmonton tonight? Uh, well, he'll have a local audience in Edmonton. And right. be lots of Wouldn't he have a bigger room. audience tonight on a stage talking about foreign affairs and indigenous issues and energy and pipelines? And an audience that is limited to the viewership of that television channel. More than he'll have in a hall tonight in Edmonton? Well, I mean, the numbers of people on TV versus the number in the hall. But yeah, he's I'm, I'm going to guess that's true. But yeah, uh, but also he's out west, as you noted off the top, and that is the other side of this country, and they have a plan, and they're following that plan. Okay, Ashton? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, Jeff is doing a better job at explaining the Prime Minister's absence than the Prime Minister himself is. Uh, the campaign has chalked this up to logistics, which absolutely nobody on the trail believes, and I think it is a big missed opportunity for the Prime Minister to prove his bona fides against his main comp competitors tonight. But, but, but what is he, uh, I suppose, what does he gain by being there? If you're Justin Trudeau, why do I need to go to this debate? Uh, there are, the others have been scheduled. I'll pick and choose the ones I want. A Prime Minister can do that, I guess. Yeah, uh, so he absolutely what, what, can, but the spotlight's on him. He's the big fish whenever he rolls up to a debate, and the reality is he'd probably have the most airtime, the most time to explain what his vision is for Canadians for the next four years. And again, this is like a job interview, and the Prime Minister himself is not showing up. This was an important moment in the last campaign. Uh, I think it was the first Absolutely. opportunity that yeah. people had to see him. He had been almost written out, uh, uh, you know, not quite, but you know, people were saying that it would be a miracle if he was able to show up, you know, kind of fully dressed and ready to go. And you know, I mean, yeah, people really it, uh, didn't one have of the a lot conservative of strategy. If he shows right. up with his pants on, he'll, he'll exactly. Yeah. They were very low expectations. And they got surprised. He did. That's a, right. He, he did, did better a, than most people he thought. He did. He did a fine job. And so that begs the question of why he wouldn't show up this time. Well, what's the answer? Uh, I think that uh, I think that they have a bit of a dilemma right now because they have the person that ran the last time isn't the same person. You know, in many ways, they're he's a different person now. Right. He's been 
in government. He's got a record. He's, he's got a record. He's made some decisions. He's got things he's got to defend. So he's no longer that kind of fresh-faced, uh, kind of almost anti-politician politician that is kind of ready to take on the status quo and to say what needs to be said right. and all of those kinds of things. He's got he's got a different way that he has to campaign this but time. But to Jeff's point, he'll, he'll still face him. all of those things in the in the in the in the two. Fair to say, I think the two. Put on, uh, you know, sponsored by the commission. None of that will change when he gets to those debates. Um, so no, but I, I don't think that that's what he wants the story of this campaign to be. I think he, I think he is avoiding this debate, uh, and and he may also have some, uh, you know, I, I think not logistical, but you know, I mean, I, I don't think that the moderator has necessarily been his best friend over the last few years, and so you know, I, I think that there's there there could be something there as well, but. Uh, all this to say, I think it's a mistake on their part. I, I understand the reasons. Uh, I even can accept some of them, but I think it's a mistake on the part of the campaign. What's, uh, I'll come back to you in a second, John. But sure. so, what, what's what's the risk for the other party leaders? Is there any risk? I mean, they're going to be talking. Uh, I, I'm guessing what we're going to see is everybody else taking shots at Justin Trudeau is not there. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the value of that? Uh, well, I think that there is value in terms of risk. There, there, the risk is that people will not pay as much attention. Right. I think, right? And uh, and you're you're kind of fighting against the person who's not there. So that's that that is hard to do. I mean, I think we might see we, we might see a clash of you know there are there are there'll be clash there, of ideas between the three people who are on the stage absolutely. too. Clear so policy that's, differences. Absolutely. That's a value for people watching that that want to be able to pick between those as well. That's right. The other value is that that except for Elizabeth May, the other two haven't run in a federal. They haven't run as the leaders of a federal right. campaign before. It's a chance to get their feet wet. Absolutely. It's a chance to get their feet wet. It's a chance to try things out a little bit. It's an opportunity for people to see them for, in many in many cases, the first time. Okay. Uh, Jeff, let me let me switch gears here. Another big issue on the campaign today, and that's the abortion issues back. This video of a conservative candidate in Toronto who's an anti-abortion activist. Uh, a video posted to social media by a Liberal cabinet minister, Carolyn Bennett. Uh, and th this has been happening. Now, Liberals are putting out these videos about... Uh, you know, calling into question where conservatives really stand on this issue of abortion, whether it would be reopened again under conservative government. Um, how much of this are we going to see? Is, uh, I mean, do you think liberals are actively working now to keep digging up these videos and keep sending them out there, and is that okay? Every campaign actively works to dig up everything they can possibly find on their opponents, uh, and the latest edition of that, obviously, is social media in the last couple of campaigns. And this video is no exception to that. I would imagine all parties have banks of videos or content on other candidates, and it's their discretion as to when they release that or how they use it. In this particular case, I think uh, you, you've, you've characterized her correctly in the video itself. Um, the other thing that came out shortly after that video that I saw uh, circulating was the organizing efforts coming out of a pro-life coalition that she was a part of, uh, saying we need to get her nominated. Let's donate some money to her. Let's get door knockers. Right. She, out she for was her asked to about up. that today and said she had no connection. It's a, right now, I think, is the group, and she said I've, I've had no contact. I think she said with right now, but well, according uh, to that email, they were raising her thousands of dollars and, and sending volunteers well to her office to get her nominated. And I'm sure they're doing the same in the campaign. But what this drives at is that the Conservative Party hasn't been able to walk the line on this, have they? They haven't been able to say what do we actually think about this. They're trying to hold this line of well, we're not going to formally uh, open anything, but we'll let our backbenchers do whatever they want, and then we'll all vote on it the way that we feel like. That means if we're the government and a backbencher brings that kind of bill forward, they're going to pass it. And that's what they're not recognizing when they're trying to dance this weird line uh, out of the leader. Ashton, what do you say? That's patently false. I disagree with everything you just said. Uh, Andrew Shear has actually been pretty clear on this topic. He said that, yes, he will allow members of parliament to bring the issues forward that is representative of their ridings, and as a government, he will spike them down. He will tell his cabinet to spike them down. Mm -hmm. I don't 
don't understand. You can have a free vote for his cabinet. You can have a free vote on issues of conscience, but he said he would not let it pass as government. He, yeah, said, he said the government wouldn't introduce it. That is a different thing. Jeff, he said he would not. Does let he it need? Pass to, does government. he need to say to Canadians, uh, you know, um, free votes on lots of stuff, private members' bills can come forward, and so on. Nothing on abortion. That's you know, the message to caucus. No, I don't. I think he's been clear enough on this issue, and of course, liberals will keep dredging up these videos. I expect it for the next. But as, 30 but as long days. as there's this, uh, and what do you think? As long as there's the idea that that backbenchers can bring forward motions or bills that may reopen the abortion debate, they can do it. Uh, but you know, he's, can, he's can, saying it won't get past that. Right. But is that still a problem? Uh, well, it is a problem. I mean, they can do it, and uh, they they will if they have if the uh, anti-choice movement is successful and has been successful in nominating a number of candidates that will that'll you know commit to that. Then that is a problem, and and this is always a problem for the conservatives. So, and it's so, so in the math on this, so they'd have to they'd have to stack a conservative yeah. government with enough yeah. uh, pro-life pro people that would be able to vote down yeah. to pass legislation to reopen the abortion debate. That's right. That's right. I mean, there's two things here. One is the liberals are. Very very good at this stuff. I have to. I mean, kudos to them. They're very good at this stuff. Their war room is exceptional at digging up dirt on their opponents, and they use it effectively. And I think in this case, they have used it effectively. Second thing is the abortion issue is going to dog uh, the conservative campaign all the way through. It has, uh, you know, it has at pr the provincial level. It, ha it has in previous federal election campaigns. It is an issue for them, and it's a hard one to explain. Um, you know, kind of because it, it's very, very, it's complicated. It's a complicated answer, mm. uh, and. They and yet provincial conservative just... governments keep getting elected. Uh, people are still voting for them. Yes. And so I guess, I, I guess that's, that's, what's, that's what's out there for the voter. What, is, what does it really mean when I see these videos? Uh, how do I interpret that? Uh, is abortion going to be back on the agenda or is it not if Andrew Scheer wins It means they're saying one thing to a portion of their base and they're saying another thing publicly. And if you want to talk about provincial governments, let's think back to Patrick Brown winning the PC leadership in Ontario. Did so significantly with support from the uh, social conservative movement on things like sex ed, on things like LGBT rights, on things like abortion, saying things that they wanted to hear, getting him across the finish line. And then when he got across the finish line, he changed his stripes and caused quite a lot of turmoil and had Tanya uh, Granick Allen chasing him down in the leadership, etc. Mm -hmm. I think we've seen the same thing here. The difference is Andrew Scheer is not Patrick Brown. I don't think people see in Andrew Scheer that he actually might, uh, in fact, live on the pro-choice side of the equation. They know he is solidly on the non-pro-choice side of the equation. And the, the commitments of maybe not doing things is not good enough for Canadians. What about that, Ashton? Can you, can you say, this is what I'll do as a, uh, this gets into that whole personal opinion debate. Can you say as a, as a man who wants to be prime minister, uh, my personal views are my personal views, but I'll make sure I stop this at the, I'll check this debate if I'm in government. This will not reopen the abortion debate. Can yeah, you get think, away with that? Yeah, like, I think Andrew uh, Scheer has been clear on one thing. Uh, unlike other parties, he's not going to stifle duly elected members of parliament with respect to bringing issues forward that their constituents care about. What he has said is very clearly, if you bring forward a, whether it be a private member's or maybe a member's motion on this particular subject, I will spike it down and I will instruct my cabinet to do just the same. And I guess that raises the whole, then what's the value of that process, I guess, in the, in the broader sense? Well, what's, what's the value of saying to people you'll be allowed to bring forward those ideas that you think are important, yeah. but they're not going anywhere. Yeah, Welcome yeah. to caucus. Yeah, no, that is a very, that is a very a kind of a weird position. I, I think what's interesting here, to be honest, is, is that what the Liberals want this campaign to be about 
is Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives on abortion. What the Conservatives want this campaign to be about is Justin Trudeau and the SNC-Lavalin uh, issue. So you can, see, you can see both of those being played out already on the first and now the second day of this campaign. I think what Canadians really want to talk about is how we protect our health care system, how we expand our health care system, how we get better and more affordable housing in the country, how we tackle climate change. And you know, while these are very important issues, and I agree with that, I think that the way that they're being played out in this campaign is a disservice to the voters who want to make a decision about what kind of par parliament they'll have. All right, uh, we'll leave it at that. Thank you all. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Paul Wells, the senior writer for McLean's, will moderate the first televised leaders debate of the campaign tonight. He joins me from Toronto as he gets set for the debate. Paul, good to see you again. Hi. Thanks for being with me. Um, so how will you deal with the fact that the Prime Minister has decided he doesn't want to take part in this debate? We're going to acknowledge it. Um, we left the invitation open right up until airtime. We're leaving it up, up, up until airtime, which means there will be a podium there. Uh, we're not planning on doing a lot of absentee theatre, pointing uh, close shots of the of the empty podium and stuff like that. But um, it's fair to acknowledge that he was invited and that he decided not to come. Uh, but I basically have a lot of business with the leaders who are going to be there. We want to know what Elizabeth May's economics plan is. We want to know what Andrew Scheer's uh, plan for the environment is. We want to know about Jagmeet Singh and foreign policy. And I figure we have more than enough to talk about to fill an hour and a half. Are you concerned that that might be a bit of a challenge? Because the, I think the, the, the impulse will be there for the others to just pile on the guy who's not there and uh, say less about themselves or... or uh, not want to face too many challenges about their own policies when they can attack the guy who's not there. How, are you expecting to have to deal with that too? Uh, yeah, the good news is there's a moderator and he's not infinitely patient. Uh, and I will point out that they are here and they did get a question and they're perfectly free to answer it uh, if, if they decide to, to uh, spend too much time piling on the guy who didn't show up. Okay. Uh, what, did, what did you hear from, I think people will be curious to know what kind of conversations you had with the, uh, the Prime Minister's people about this debate and uh, whether you got a clear indication of why they decided not to come. Um, the only explanation they offered is the one they've made publicly, that they are awfully fond of the um, commission process that they set up with uh, David Johnston, the former Governor General, deciding who gets to run the nominally official debate, uh, and um, uh, and that on top of that, they're also awfully interested in the audience that will be watching the TVA debate in French in Quebec in a, uh, in a, in a few weeks' time. Um, and, and, and so um, we didn't have a lot of conversation. I didn't have a lot of chats with the prime minister's people. We sent them uh, uh, information about what our plan was. We sent them an invitation. They said they would consider it. And... Um, uh, uh, 20 minutes before we held the draw for uh, speaking order in the debate, they announced that they wouldn't be sending anyone because they weren't participating. Okay. What, what do you think of I mean, that, that is the argument, that uh, essentially the, the, the two commission-sponsored debates are sufficient, but I'm going to do this other one over here, TVA, because of the massive audience that comes with it. Uh, what, what is your purpose? What, what is your objective in, in holding this debate uh, when there are these other debates? Why do, you, why do you think that's just not good enough just to have those other debates and you wanted to have this debate as well? Well, in Canada... It has never been accepted by Canadian society that the right to ask questions is bestowed by some higher authority. Uh, I, I was raised to understand that the right to ask questions as a citizen is universal. It belongs to all of us. And it has been exercised in a lot of different ways uh, at a lot of different times. Uh, during the last campaign, Chatelaine magazine interviewed all of the leaders and ran 
uh, Q&As with all of the leaders. Uh, Peter Mansbridge at the CBC uh, flew out to, um, I think it was a farm in British Columbia, and interviewed Stephen Harper, and then he flew to wherever uh, Justin Trudeau wanted to talk to him, and everyone was happy to talk to Peter Mansbridge. Um, and, 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 um, and so um, we decided we'd just have an informal process. We're gonna, we, we told the parties we're going to have a debate. If you want to send your leader, we'll be happy to uh, welcome your leader. And uh, all of them answered in a legitimate way. Three of them said, that's a great idea, here we come. And one of them said, thanks for the invitation, I've got other business. That's, that's fine, uh, but I don't like the idea that there is only one legitimate moment at which questions may be asked of the leaders. Um, obviously, they take, there's, there's scrums every morning, right. but it's a different thing when Elizabeth May and Jagmeet Singh, who have been uh, feuding for months, are finally going to be in a room together, and they're going to get a chance to address that obvious rivalry, rather than asking them questions separately. That's the sort of dynamic you can only get in a debate. Right. And you, we're going to take advantage of it. Uh, you're a journalist, and, and some people would suggest that you've been uh, you've been critical of this prime minister. Uh, uh, do you think that played into it at all? Do you think there was any anything at play that look we don't want to do a debate with Paul Wells? Well, because we didn't have a lot of long conversations, I can't know. Uh, my hunch is that that was not the main deciding factor. Um, that mostly it's because they the liberals honestly think that this uh, new, untested, interesting debate commission process that they come up with is the best thing in uh, official leaders' debates that anyone has ever seen. And they really want to make sure it works by minimizing, not eliminating, but minimizing the number of invitations they take from other organizations. Um, I'll tell you this. Um, any, any government that thinks that it can uh, snow or cow any political commentator by hanging over them the threat that they will, at some future date, maybe not show up for an interview or a debate or some event that that news organization throws, does not know journalists very well. Because I don't know a professional journalist who would um, uh, tailor their coverage uh, as a function of that threat, if any future government were ever to think that was a good idea. All right, let, let's let, let's uh, drill down on a little bit of the of the content of tonight. What are you going to be exploring with these leaders? What do you think Canadians need to hear about where they are on, on some of these key issues? So we've broken up the evening into four blocks. Um, most of them are obvious. Uh, we're going to have a block on the economy to open it up. We're going to have a block on foreign affairs because there's an awful lot happening in the world. And we're going to have a block on energy and the environment, which basically means pipelines and carbon taxes. Um, and then the fourth one, in 2015, when we had the debate on a similar format, it was on um, institutions of democracy. It was essentially a section on Senate reform. Uh, and that's not a big issue this time. So we've switched that out. And instead, we've got a block on Indigenous issues. Because uh, you can go days and days and days on the campaign trail without getting asked about those issues. And yet, you can't go two days as prime minister without having to uh, figure out how you're going to address these huge challenges uh, on, ind on Indigenous files. So we figured that this is important enough to merit a quarter of our debate. All right. Well, we will be watching uh, tonight, of course, Paul, and it'll be uh, live here on CPAC. Uh, Paul Wells from McLean's Magazine. Always good to talk to you and good luck tonight. Thanks very much. All right, and a reminder, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, uh, right here on CPAC, the uh, City TV McLean's debate. And I'll be back here around 7.30 with a bit of a, we'll, we'll sort of have a conversation to tee that up uh, as we get uh, set to show you that debate. Now, um, 
We are going to be hearing from a lot of Canadians during the course of our coverage. We've already heard from a lot of them in the first two days of the campaign. So we, we've been dropping into Canadian cities and towns across the country to get feedback from Canadians. It's what we do here at CPAC. And uh, we've been asking Canadians what they think about not just the debate tonight, but debates in general. What, are they, what effect do they have on, on their opinions in an election campaign? And uh, we wanted to canvass some people. We happen to be in this stop uh, in Saskatoon. Let's hear what people had to say. It probably will because I've actually changed from time to time, you know what I mean, not just a loyal party, I actually listen to what they have to say and uh, we, we've actually vote according to what we believe the platform will be the best. Uh, I will definitely watch them, they will definitely not have an impact on how I vote. <laughs> um, to that end, I'm not entirely certain which way I'm going to go with my, my vote at this point, um, but the leaders debates usually aren't the deciding factor for me. Definitely watch them though to see how, how the different leaders perform and what they have to say. I'm uh, I'm pretty uh, pretty staunch conservative, so I just pick whoever's whoever the conservative uh, candidate is. Um, I think uh, I think for people who are maybe on the fence in terms of who they want to vote for, that could have uh, a little bit more of an impact. But for me myself, uh, I don't think the debates will have an impact that way. It shows how good they are, how lively they are. You know, it's what ideas they come up with on the fly. Um, it, it does. It has a huge impact. I'll listen to them, right? I might know how I'm going to vote anyway, but but sure, I always listen. Yeah, I think we can get more information and uh, we see how they perform. And um, yeah, it's, it's a piece of information, but it's only one piece out of many. Well, you're going to, hear, uh, going to be hearing a lot about numbers during this election campaign, and we want to try and find some way to make sense of those numbers in a bunch of different ways over the course of the election campaign. And to help us do that, we're going to be joined by David Coletto, the CEO of Abacus Data, public opinion research firm. And many of you will know he's a frequent uh, guest here and contributor at CPAC, and he's with us again for the election campaign. David, we're going to talk about... Uh, the key important issues to Canadians as we head into this campaign and we're going to particularly focus in this part of our conversation on health care and pharmacare but I want to start first by uh, giving some sense from you about what you see your role here in helping people understand all the numbers they're going to hear both from Abacus data but from a lot of right. polling firms during this election campaign. Well you know we get tons of polls released over the course of the election I guess my job is going to be making sense of that all. For us, um, you know, it's not just the horse race, although that will be a prominent part of the conversation, obviously, but during a campaign, a lot of things can happen. Campaigns matter. What dynamics are, are the polls picking up? Are certain events, moments in that election campaign uh, having an impact? What issues do people uh, talk about? We're gonna talk about issues today, but does a campaign move one issue up or down depending on the debates that we are, we're having? So I'm here to make sense of it all and, and, and help, most important, the viewers uh, understand what's going on yeah. in the campaign. And we appreciate you uh, taking the time to do that. So we're going to get to, I say, uh, healthcare and pharmacare in just a moment because it is a big issue. But let's see where it ranks because you, you've, let's start off the conversation with what issues Canadians are saying will be driving their votes in this election campaign. Right, and we what regularly ask this. And this, this uh, these question in this case was, what five issues um, are going to be most important in determining your vote in October? 
And what we find is there's a, a large number that, that sort of top the list. And the reason they don't add up to 100 for the viewers is because you can pick five. And so cost of living is at the top of the list uh, during this election. 55% of Canadians uh, selected that. We're going to talk about health care. And look, health care is number two. 42% said access to health care is a top issue, uh, followed by climate change at 39%, taxes at 38 um, You can see the economy, poverty and inequality, housing, which is often framed around housing affordability, immigration policies, government spending and deficits, and then the cost and availability of medicines, which is connected to health care, rounds out uh, this, this top tier of issues. These are all issues in which at least one out of four Canadians ranked in their top five. Okay, so we, we know we're going to hear a lot in this campaign about, uh, I'm not sure how much we'll hear about access to health care and those yeah. kinds of things, although we should, because it's always a top issue for Canadians, but I think we'll hear a lot about pharmacare. And those kinds of things, there is an access issue, obviously, in the pharmacare piece. Let's start with access to health care and look at the level of concern across the country that you're picking up. What did you find? Yeah, this is one of those issues where it's not, it's not consistent across the country. Well, you know, at least a quarter of Canadians in every province or region care about health care. Alberta, the lowest, to 27%. Um, there are areas where it's a greater concern. And in particular, Atlantic Canada at 56, 50, majority of Atlantic Canadians said this is their top issue. It's the number one issue in Atlantic Canada. Um, and to some, less so, but still prominent in Quebec, right? 48% of Quebecers. And Ontario, 42%. And you get into the prairies, it's 41%. And then on the far west coast, uh, only a third of British Columbians put in their top issue. So, you know, and, and just as an antidote, you know, you hear stories in Atlantic Canada about the lack of family doctors or hospitals closing because they, they can't find physicians. Or having to travel outside the Maritimes right. or Atlantic Canada this to get the health care you need. This is a prime issue. Uh, in Atlantic Canada and, and to, to some extent in Quebec and and so I think voters there are probably going to be listening to see what their federal leaders say about this issue. Well let's let's go there so if this is one of the key issues uh, and it is so what do, what do they say about uh, the parties with the best approach to access to health care? Well the Liberals have a slight advantage on this issue 26% uh, of those who care about this issue think the Liberals would do it uh, would do the best job or had the best approach on it followed by the New Democrats at 18% and the Conservatives at 16 the big picture is no one party has a obvious advantage, right? This is an issue that the New Democrats typically do better on uh, than, than on other issues for them. Um, it still, though, has a very high level of undecided. So, right. And that makes sense because, you know, health care is a provincial responsibility, particularly access to health care and delivery of care. And so our federal politicians don't often talk about it specifically. Uh, but I always hear, well, it's always at the top of the list, always at the top of the list. You know, and politicians and the parties aren't probably going to do much about it. I do think, though, you're, I suspect that the candidates at the doorsteps, because it's such a high issue, will likely hear something about it. And there's an opportunity here for the parties to, to offer up. Right, I mean, what's, what the, what's the message? The message here is, I think, as I see it, it's an issue. And secondly, there's this high body of people who aren't sure. Yeah. So that if you've got a plan you think can, can win over Canadians and you plan to follow through on it, there's an audience waiting to hear it. Yeah, right? and, and it's uh, uh, something we didn't highlight. It's an audience that's of all ages, mm -hmm. right? Similar to like affordability issues. If you're young, you're worried about maybe your aging parents. If you're older, you're worried about your own health care. If you have kids, like it's, it's an issue that affects everybody. And so uh, I just think it's, it's something that may, may not be part of the campaign, but I think voters are going to be asking questions about it. All right, we know we're going to hear about pharmacare. Okay. We're already hearing about pharmacare. So you asked, you know, about the party with the best approach to dealing with the prescription drug challenges. What do you find? And here, uh, really no one advantage for any party. Uh, the Liberals are slightly ahead of the New Democrats, 22% of those. 
Of the 25% of Canadians, out of the one out of four Canadians who said cost and availability of medicines is a top issue, um, you know, 22% said the Liberals were the best on it, the NDP at 19 and the Conservatives at 15, and a big number, 31% unsure. And I think it's really interesting, right, given how prominent this issue has been for the Liberal government, right, the, they haven't really moved aggressively on, on an issue, but they've been you know, talking about this, and it's been in the budget in terms of they had the the, 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 the advisory right. committee and, and, and they Dr. Prom Hoskins. They promised a form of national, yeah. some kind of national pharmacare, but they're not saying whether it'll be universal public pay that might have a mix of private stuff. Exactly. They might so only, we don't really know what the Liberals right. are going to offer. The NDP say they're doing it full universal, yeah. and they'll do it by 2020. The Conservatives, they're leaning towards a uh, if, if a plan that would cover people who don't have coverage right. now, but if you have private plans at your workplace, then we'd leave the system basically the way it is, right? right? And so, you know, I look at this data, while the public policy is important, is there a political argument to be, like, is there political gain here to making this issue more prominent in the campaign? Frankly, I look at this data and I say no. I think there's other issues that are more divisive and, and more clear for one party to have an advantage on. Doesn't mean if the Liberals make this a focus or the NDP push this issue hard that they, it won't become prominent. Uh, but right now, I think a lot of Canadians um, care about this issue and they're waiting to see what the parties promise. Um, the NDP's already rolled out theirs, but some of the others aren't, the details aren't there. So wait and see, I think. Yeah, we'll wait and see. David Coletto, thank you. Thanks, Peter. All right, and the New Democrats were pushing the health care issue today and uh, pushing Pharmacare today and repeating their pledge that they would have a, a national public, uh, fun, publicly funded universal Pharmacare plan by 2020 if they form government. And as we've seen, health care always ranks at or near the top of the priorities for Canadians in these public opinion surveys and certainly at election time. No different this time. But what is different is that sharpened focus on pharmacare. It's been in the news again now for several months. Uh, we'll hear a lot about that in the campaign in a moment. Experts will discuss what's on offer from the parties and what's right for Canadians. But first, a little background. The Liberal Party has promised to have some form of national pharmacare if elected, but has not committed to a single-payer model. The Conservatives have promised a more fill-in-the-gaps approach, coverage for those who can't afford it. The NDP has promised to bring in publicly funded universal pharmacare by 2020, as well as dental, vision, hearing and mental health care in the next 10 years. The Green Party has promised a universal publicly funded pharmacare plan and basic dental care. In 2018 alone, Canadians spent over $30 billion to fill more than 600 million prescriptions. It's estimated that more than 40% of that amount was financed by the public sector. Private insurance plans accounted for nearly 37%. The remaining 20% was paid out of pocket by Canadians. According to the Parliamentary Budget Officer, a national pharmacare plan can save about $4.2 billion per year. So as the debate over pharmacare sharpens in this election campaign, what is the right model for Canada? Do we need a better way to ensure Canadians get the prescription drugs they need? Let's bring in three uh, guests now to talk about that. Dr. Daniel Martin is the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Executive at Women's College Hospital and Associate Professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Good to see you. Dr. Brett Skinner is the uh, CEO of the Canadian Health Policy Institute. And Dr. Adam Kassam is a physician and the Chair of uh, Physical uh, Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Ontario Medical Association. Thank you all for being here for 
this important conversation. And um, if I can, I want to start by hearing from each of you, uh, and I'll start with Dr. Martin, on the importance of a universal single-payer pharmacare plan for Canada. Where does that rank as a priority for the healthcare system? I think for the healthcare system, it's priority number one, uh, given the critical need for federal involvement in this particular issue. So we know that Canadians, uh, there are huge numbers of Canadians who cannot access their medically necessary prescription medicines. And yet at the same time, we're spending 30% more than the OECD average on drugs in Canada. And we ironically have huge numbers of Canadians who are the victims of overprescribing and inappropriate prescribing. So this is an area that's affecting Canadians' health in a wide variety of ways. And it's an area that is ripe for intervention where really federal leadership is critically important. Uh, and that's why for those of us who work in healthcare every day, I think it's uh, probably priority number one when it comes to healthcare policy in Canada. All right, Dr. Skinner, let me let me turn to you. Where do you stand on that question? Is a universal pharmacare system the most urgent priority for Canada's healthcare system? Uh, no, I think our existing system is actually working quite well, but there are some gaps that we need to fill, and I think that's a better approach than uh, taking the whole system and, and throwing it away and starting over with a national or universal single-payer system. I like to say that it's unnecessary bad for patients and costly for taxpayers to have a single-payer national pharmacare system. Uh, the reason I say it's unnecessary is because the country already has universal catastrophic coverage through a variety of safety net programs in all the provinces, and there's public drug plans that cover seniors and low-income social assistance recipients, and 23 million Canadians receive their benefits through private drug plans. So really, we have universal coverage now. Where the gaps really occur is in formulary exclusions, that is, in public drug plans that don't cover all new drugs that are approved by Health Canada. And that's where the gaps are really occurring. All right, I want to come back. We'll come back to some of this, but uh, let me hear from uh, Dr. Hassam. Uh, what's your view on this? Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Uh, the reason why a conversation about pharmacare is so important in this country right now is, as Dr. Martin alluded to, uh, there are many Canadians across the country, and the, the number might be up to one in five, who have difficulty with affording their prescription medications. And so, um, while we have a, th and this represents an opportunity to really improve upon our healthcare system. And while having a conversation about uh, the concept of pharmacare is important, just as important are the details about what any kind of plan would look like moving forward for all Canadians. Sure, I mean, let, let, let's jump in, Dr. Martin, jump in there, then we, we've, so if we know some people can't afford prescription drugs, uh, we, uh, we've heard, we've heard the, the other side of the argument that, look, it just, just fill the gap. So what's, what's the answer to those who suggest, and, and we're hearing it, uh, just develop a, a plan that covers people who don't have coverage and, and leave, leave the rest the way it is? What's the response to that? Well, in fact, a lot of the people who aren't filling their prescriptions already have some form of coverage, and yet they can't afford the co-payments, they can't afford the deductibles. And remember that each of us who thinks that we have coverage, you have a private drug plan through your employer, each of us is only a diagnosis and a job loss away from being stuck in the same situation as the taxi drivers and the nannies and the self-employed people of this country. Um, and so what you end up with is a situation where people are dependent on their employment 
um, for having access to drug coverage. But of course, one of the first things that happens when you get sick is it threatens your ability to work. And so uh, in the real world, in the real healthcare system where sick people are showing up in the emergency department because their asthma or their chronic lung disease is out of control because they're taking their puffers every other day, or their blood pressure's out of control because they were waiting for the check to come in at the end of the month to fill their prescription. Those things have real consequences for people's health, and the complications get dealt with in our healthcare system. So why should we not just fill in the gaps then and deal with the people who don't have any drug coverage at all? One of the biggest reasons is because that is the most expensive way to deal with the problem. Right. So we're going to pay. We're going to either pay publicly or we're going to pay privately for our drugs. It is way cheaper if we all go in together. What's your response to that, Dr. Skinner? Well, I think uh, quite the opposite, that national farm care will be very costly for taxpayers. Well, we're hearing, we're hearing numbers around $20 billion by the time a plan would be fully implemented. But uh, it, 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 is that necessarily more expensive than the, the, the money that's in the system now for drugs? Well, the savings that I think uh, Dr. Martin is referring to, according to the parliamentary budget officer who did an analysis of this, would come largely from rationing and price regulations. And I think some of it is involving a lot of rosy scenarios. Um, even so, it would transfer $20 billion to the federal budget off of provincial budgets and out of the private sector. And that includes $7.5 billion in new additional expenses for taxpayers. So really, we're talking about a cost shift, not a cost savings. And there's additional cost to patients. Um, the public drug plan proposed by the parliamentary budget officer was based on Quebec's public drug plan formulary, which only covers one-third of all new medicines. Uh, and private drug plans cover almost 100% of new medicines. So there's a drastic difference between private drug benefits that are offered in, in Canada now versus what would be offered to Canadians under national pharmacare. Yeah, and 23 I, million Canadians would have to accept more inferior uh, benefit levels. I, I guess that's, that's the, the, for, the, for people watching, uh, Dr. Kassam, the bottom line is, what is the best option for patients? Because that is the bottom line for patients. Will a universal pharmacare plan give patients better access to the drugs they need? I think the, in, the intention behind a pharmacare plan comes from a good place. It, it identifies a deficiency in our system and potentially offers a, a solution. I think what's unclear at this point in time is what kind of plan would be best for our country moving forward. And for the report itself, it would have been nice if the council had provided uh, a side-by-side -side comparison of all of the different uh, um, options they were considering, both from a cost perspective as well as from a health uh, perspective. And this would have allowed Canadians, I think, to be better informed in order to make a decision at the ballot box in the fall. Uh, so what, like, what, you know, what, what more do they need to know, I guess, is, is the question. I think knowing a little bit more about how much cost savings are in place, and let's uh, one of the important points I think to recognize here is there's a quote about uh, the forecasted savings of about five billion dollars for, for prescription drugs, right. which is a significant number. But we should also recognize that that is a theoretical savings. That is something that it depends very strongly on the success of negotiations between the Canada Drug Agency and pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And as Dr. Skinner alluded to, there is also the potential that 
certain pharmaceutical companies may choose to take their business elsewhere or not sell certain types of medications to the Canadian market. So while there is an advantage for, let's say, bulk buying in terms of reducing the price for drugs, there's also it's also important for Canadians to recognize some of the risks of implementing a national program of this nature. Uh, Dr. Martin, mm -hmm. let, let me hear, hear you on that if I can in terms of uh, the notion of cost in the, in the conversation and, and the suggestion that uh, uh, under a, a, a universal publicly paid single-payer pharmacare plan, people might actually have less access to the drugs they need. So I think what people want, what patients want, and certainly what healthcare providers want, is for people to get access to the drugs that they need. And so do we want plans that cover everything for everyone all the time. The evidence on that is actually very clear. We don't. We shouldn't want those plans because those plans are part of what contributes to over-prescribing and inappropriate prescribing that leads to medication errors, to unnecessary drug interactions, to seniors falling and breaking their hips and ending up in the hospital. So what each of us should want for ourselves and our own families is a drug formulary that's actually based on evidence that gives us access to the things that we need, but that also tries to guide prescribing behaviors so that people like me don't inadvertently give you a prescription for something that's gonna cause you more harm than good. And that's actually a complex conversation, not one that's easy to distill in a debate over you know, political platforms. What you want is to know when you're going in the ballot box that the party you're voting for is willing to put in place intelligent and thoughtful processes and procedures where we're making decisions about what we're going to pay for for everybody based on evidence and not based on threats from the pharmaceutical industry and that are going to ensure that people can get access to the things that they need but that are also going to protect us from things that could cause us unnecessary harm. Dr. Skinner, let, let me let me hear you. I know you want to jump in and and that and on the access question if I can. Will, will does does a a universal publicly paid, pay, sorry, publicly paid pharmacare plan uh, guarantee better access to the, the, the drugs people need. Uh, no, not not versus the current system. It doesn't. Uh, for 23 million Canadians who have private drug benefits, they would be taking a, a much smaller, more narrow list of drugs uh, that would be eligible for coverage under pharmacare versus what they have now. That's a substantial difference, uh, and I think that we have to look at the cost of the alternative. We're talking about the cost of a single-payer system, which is substantial. What's the cost of the alternative to fill the gaps? I've done the analysis, and it's about $2.5 billion for existing public plans to come up to the Quebec drug formulary level. Most plans in the country are below that. And it would only cost $2.5 billion for them to come up to the Quebec level. And that leaves the private sector uh, drug plans uh, alone, so there's no dis disruption. And we end up with better drug coverage for in existing public drug plans across the country. And it, we can add another $2.5 billion and come up to the private sector level for a total of $5 billion versus a $20 billion transfer to the federal government. All right. Uh, Dr. Kassam, so w w where do you find yourself coming down on, on this conversation then, uh, based on everything we're hearing? Yeah, so, you know, as a doctor, uh, we are often told and, and, and our goal is to really practice evidence-based medicine. And as policymakers, I think we should use the same approach. And what I mean by that is we should be trying to learn from previous attempts 
at a PharmaCare program or other programs across the country. So for example, I, I bring this lens from Ontario, which was last year in 2018, uh, OHIP Plus was rolled out across the province. Right. And there were a significant number of unintended consequences for patients. So for example, there were children who were on medications who were either forced to switch medications or lost their coverage as a result of this implementation. And so any program that we roll out across the country needs to be patient-centered and needs to try and mitigate any unintended consequences for the patients whom we serve. Right, but Dr. Martin, can you do that? I mean, if you, yeah, can you can you can you build a plan that ensures that uh, the examples Dr. Kassam has just given don't happen? I, I mean, I think we've got to try, right? We don't. I mean, the the alternative is to leave ourselves in a situation where some people are getting too much medication and a whole lot of people can't get access to the very basic things that they need to manage their chronic diseases. So let's not paint too rosy a picture of what of the situation that we're in now. Anyone who works in an emergency department in a Canadian hospital, anyone who works on a ward in a Canadian hospital can tell you that people are suffering as a result of the crazy system that we have right now. And actually, we're all overpaying. So. Uh, the, I don't think anybody thinks that we're going to do well by continuing under the structures that we've got. Whenever you put a new plan into place, you have to pay very close attention to what the potential uh, uh, cracks in the transition are going to be. And I think we learned some important lessons from the OHIP Plus implementation. And actually, a lot of them were fixed quite quickly thereafter. And so, you know, uh, any transition is going to be bumpy, but, but let's not pretend that the situation we find ourselves in right now is one that's tenable for Canadians. I think when we go to the ballot box and when we're talking about an election, what Canadians want to look for is, are political parties taking a stance on pharmacare? Is it clear what their stance is? And are they considering more than just making sure that everybody gets covered? Are they also considering how we're going to get prices down to be more in line with every other industrialized country in the world? And are we going to do something about over-prescribing and harmful, inappropriate prescribing? That's what a real comprehensive pharmacare plan looks like, right. and that's what right. we should be demanding uh, of our people. I, I want to hear from our other two guests uh, to, to finish up here in, in, the, in, the, in this context here. Uh, here's what the major parties are saying about pharmacare. The Liberals have promised some form of national pharmacare, but have not committed to a universal single-payer model. The NDP is promising universal pharmacare and uh, uh, promising to do it quickly. Uh, uh, the Green Party supports it. The Conservatives favour coverage for those who can't get uh, drug, co drug coverage through private plans. So, uh, Dr. Skinner, what should voters be considering if this issue is important to their vote? Well, I think voters have to consider the changes in their drug benefits that they enjoy now. What will happen to those benefits under a national pharmacare system? And taxpayers have to consider how it's going to impact their pocketbook. And I, you know, I think we also have to consider access to future innovative products. I, I personally suffer from Parkinson's disease, and my particular form of Parkinson's disease is non-responsive to existing pharmaceutical treatments. So it's rare that that occurs, but for me, that means that I'm waiting on the edge of my seat for the next generation of innovative medicines to come through the pipeline, and then I would need to have access to those drugs when they are available through my uh, insurance plans, whether they be public plans or private plans. And so these issues are, are important things for voters to consider. How does it impact your pocketbook? Are there cheaper alternatives to achieving the same goal? Uh, how does it affect my access to, to drugs currently, and how will it affect my access to drugs in the future? All right. What, what do you think uh, voters ought to consider, Dr. Kassem? 
So I think it's important that uh, Canadians understand that any national pharmacare program that we move forward to, and if that's, if, if that's what we choose to do as a country, will be dependent on our political leadership. And so that will depend very significantly upon the relationship between the federal and provincial governments. It will depend on the composition of parliament moving forward. And so this is why every election, including the one in the fall, is very, very important. I'd like to also add that as a, as a rehab doctor, um, we see patients uh, with uh, with a number of needs. So for example, last week I saw a patient with a stroke and they had lost the ability to use their arm and leg as well as had issues with communication. And so not only was uh, the, the drugs that they were on important for their, let's say, for example, secondary prevention, but their physiotherapy and speech therapy was also important. So there are services um, that are currently underfunded in our country and in our system, and we have to have an honest discussion in our country about what our priorities are, what we choose to fund, and, uh, and the extent to which we do that, because there are a whole host of needs that, are, that Canadians right. have and pharmacare is just one of that spectrum uh, of needs. Yeah, we focused our conversation on that, uh, Dr. Martin, but there are clearly lots of other things that uh, the party should be talking about as well when it comes to healthcare, right? Absolutely, and I think, you know, actually, ev virtually every conversation that we're gonna hear over the course of this political campaign is a health conversation. The climate change conversation um, is, has huge impacts on health from, you know, asthma exacerbations to the impact of wildfires and uh, uh, extreme temperatures and uh, access to the food supply. Climate change is as much about health as it is about um, other other factors. You know, so is the economic um, uh, conversation about how we're we going to make sure that our economy grows effectively and that people can get jobs because income is the most determinant of health. I sure. mean, actually, a lot of these things are not health care, but they're all health conversations. All right. And look, at uh, thank you all for the conversation uh, on, on this issue today. Uh, it's been good to hear from all of you. Uh, appreciate your time today, uh, all of you. Uh, thank you so much, Daniel Martin, uh, Brett Skinner, and Adam Kassan. Thank you so thank much you. for uh, taking the time to... Uh, uh, broach this subject and get into some of the, the, uh, the nuts and bolts of why this issue matters to Canadians and should matter to Canadians. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you.